0: Section 14 of that affair at Elizabeth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. That affair at Elizabeth by Burton Egbert Stevenson, Chapter 24, The Secret. The dusk of evening was falling as we were ferried across to the city. I bade Godfrey good bye and took a cab direct to my rooms, for I was weary in body and spirit. But a bath and dinner improved both, and at eight o'clock I was ringing at Mr. Royce's door, for I knew how anxious he would be to hear my story and besides I owed him some reparation for leaving him alone at the office. He opened the door himself, and his face brightened at sight of me. "'Why, Lester!' he cried, and shook hands warmly. "'Come in. I'm mighty glad to see you.' "'I thought you'd like to hear about it,' I said. "'Of course I shall. It was like you to think of it. I wanted to talk it over with you. It may help to straighten things out. I was afraid there wouldn't be time at the office. "'We are rushed there, and that's a fact. Suppose we go up to the den. We can talk our talk out there.' though he added as he led the way up the stair we could do that anywhere to-night i'm keeping bachelor's hall that affair at elizabeth so upset my wife that she's gone away to the mountains to get braced up here we are and he threw open a door it was a cheery room where he had gathered together the impedimenta which had marked his progress through bachelordom mementos of his college days and such other possessions as were peculiarly his now he said when we were settled let's have the story of course i've read the papers but i hope you won't take that into account so i told it step by step while he listened silently save for an occasional exclamation of astonishment it's the most remarkable thing i ever heard he said when i had finished i don't wonder that you believed at first that it had some connection with the lawrence affair it was certainly a remarkable coincidence that they should happen together as they did and the first affair is as deep a mystery as ever godfrey says it's deeper than ever I showed him Miss Lawrence's photograph as we came in on the train together, and after he'd looked at it he said it was the strangest puzzle he'd ever encountered. It's absolutely unexplainable. Mr. Royce smoked for a moment in silence. Of course there must be some explanation, he said, and an adequate one. Marshall Lawrence wouldn't have run away without good and sufficient reason. No, I agreed, but there's one thing certain. Whatever the reason, it isn't of a nature to render the marriage impossible." she was probably overwrought when she wrote that note to curtis something had upset her so suddenly and completely that she couldn't see clearly how do you know that don't you remember her mother's last words to me she said it would be for curtis to decide yes i remember and i think there's no question as to what his decision will be no i agreed most men would be glad to get marcia lawrence upon any terms not curtis but then he's desperately in love maybe he'll be willing to recede a shade or two from his ideal He won't have to recede, I asserted confidently. She's spotless, whatever the secret. I hope so, agreed our junior slowly. Well, they'll have to fight it out together when they meet on the other side. If I were Curtis, I'd be mighty shaky about that meeting. And I, of course, I added. The whole mystery hinges on that letter from New York. Godfrey imagined he knew the contents, but the event showed how wide he was of the mark. He had a theory that the letter was written by a disreputable blackmailing husband of the girl whom she'd believed dead. That was his theory from the first, the only possible explanation, he called it. Then, when he found that a picturesque stranger had asked the way to the Kingdon cottage, he immediately concluded that the letter had appointed a rendezvous, and that Miss Lawrence had kept it, all of which was afterwards shown to be mere moonshine. Not the first part of it, Mr. Royce objected. There's been nothing to disprove that. Nor anything to prove it. True, but it has a certain speciousness. Yes, all of Godfrey's theories have that. Do you remember what a perfect one he built up in the holiday case, and how it fell to pieces? Well, I believe this is wilder yet. A look at Miss Lawrence's face will show you she hasn't any past of that kind. Godfrey himself admits that now. My companion ran his fingers savagely through his hair. Of course I don't know anything about it, he said, but I've already told you how the affair affects me. Trust me, Lester, there's some terrible secret just below the surface. I wanted to say as much to Curtis, but didn't quite dare." That's why I shiver at the thought of that meeting. I pity him when he comes face to face with it. That reminds me, I found an old photograph of him the other day. He turned to his desk and, after a moment's search, brought out a card. He gave it to me when we were chums together at college, he added, and handed it over to me. It showed Curtis as he was at twenty or twenty-one. The face was plumper than I knew it, and the skin much fairer. The hair was worn longer, and the absence of beard or moustache revealed fully the singularly pure lines of the lower portion of the face, a poetic face, yet full of fire and vigour. "'We used to call him the Butte,' went on my companion. "'I told you that he was rather girlish-looking. Well, see here. Here he is as the soubrette in a burlesque we got up in senior year.' He handed me a group picture, including the whole company. The central figure was a charming girl, with admirable arms, hands, shoulders, an inimitable way of holding the head. "'Great Scott!' I shouted, springing to my feet. "'Don't you see it? Don't you see it, man?' "'See it? See what, Lester?' repeated Mr. Royce in amazement. "'What's the matter, old fellow?' "'No, I haven't gone mad,' I laughed, as he put a restraining hand on my arm. "'It's the key to the mystery,' I added, as calmly as I could. "'I'm not going to tell you. I want you to see it for yourself. Come along.' He followed me down to the street without a word, though I could see how his hand trembled as he took down his hat i myself was quivering from head to foot with excitement with triumph what a blind fool i had been not to suspect it long ago godfrey had never seen curtis or he would have known the instant his eyes rested on that photograph luckily the journey was not a long one or i could not have kept the secret sit there i said when we reached my room and i motioned him to a chair near the table i turned down the light and arranged my properties let me confess at once to a secret liking for the dramatic the unexpected then i turned up the light "'Now look at them,' I said, and pointed to the three photographs placed side by side before him. He stared at them, at Marcia Lawrence, at Burr Curtis, smooth-faced and girlish, at the soubrette. I knew by the sudden deep breath he drew that he understood. There could be no mistaking, feature for feature they would not match at all, but there was a tone, an expression, that little way of holding the head. "'Of course,' he said slowly at last. "'Of Of course How easily it explained Marcia Lawrence's panic? Her flight there could be no marriage, no explanation, only flight. There's one crucial test, I said, glancing at my watch. I'll make it this very evening. An hour later I was shown for the third time into the study of Dr. Schuller at Elizabeth. He was sitting at his desk just as I had found him once before. Ah, Mr Lester, he began. Dr. Schuller, I interrupted. "'I've a photograph here which I'm very anxious for you to see. "'This is it. "'Whose do you think it is?' "'He took it with a glance of astonishment, "'moved over to the table, and held it beneath the rays of the lamp. "'Why,' he faltered, "'why, it reminds me very strongly of young Boyd Endicott, "'as he was when I knew him thirty years ago. "'My heart leapt. "'As a matter of fact, Dr. Schuller,' I said, "'it's a photograph of Burr Curtis, as he was ten years ago.' He stared at me for a moment without understanding. Then I saw the light of comprehension in his eyes, and he sank heavily back into his chair. "'Poor woman!' he murmured hoarsely. "'Poor woman!' And all the way back to New York I was wondering which of the women he had meant, Which was the more to be pitied? The woman who thirty years before had been whirled away from her lover by a trick of fortune? Or the younger one, innocent and unsuspecting discovering only at the last moment the horrible abyss yawning at her feet which of the women had he meant End of chapter twenty four chapter twenty five the revelation neither mr royce nor myself was quite equal to the routine work of the office next morning we had solved the mystery indeed but so far from bringing us relief the solution had brought us a terrible unrest miss lawrence had chosen her words well when she had said that the marriage was quite quite impossible. Yet who could have guessed a reason so dark, so terrifying, so unanswerable? Small wonder that she had fled, that her first thought had been to put the ocean between herself and her lover. How could she meet him, how look him in the eyes, with that secret weighing upon her? How would she face him when she found him awaiting her at Liverpool? I shuddered at thought of that meeting. We should have held Curtis back, we should have known that it was no idle whim, no empty fear which had driven her over sea resolutely i tried to put such thoughts behind me and to apply myself to the mass of work which had accumulated during my three days absence was it only three days it seemed weeks months since that moment when i opened the telegram from mr royce which summoned me to elizabeth but they would not be frowned down for there were many questions still unanswered what had been lucy kingdon's connection with the mystery above all why had mrs lawrence permitted the courtship to go on perhaps she had not known only at the last moment after her daughter's disappearance had she suspected no doubt it was that sudden revelation confirmed perhaps by lucy kingdon coming to her after she had left us in the library which had struck her white and tremulous which had urged her to tell me that the search must cease yet even then she had spoken as though the marriage might be arranged as though it were not impossible she had said that curtis himself should choose What had she meant by that? Was there some depth which we had not yet touched? Some turn to the tragedy which we did not suspect? Had we really found the solution after all? My mind flew back to the Kingdon women with a sort of fascination. What had Harriet Kingdon meant by that wild outburst of hers? There are others, she had said, who have waived their rights and torn their hearts and withered in silence. What had she meant by that? What secret was it had torn her heart? Were the words merely a meaningless outburst, an incoherent cry, the result of a mind disordered? I could not bring myself to think so, but cudgel my brain as I might, I could read no meaning into them. Yet it was for her that Mrs. Lawrence had sent at that supreme moment when I revealed to her the secret of the letter. It was of her she had spoken when she cried, I thought it was that woman. Harriet Kingdon had known the secret then, and had kept silence. Then suddenly it burst upon me what a hideous thing it was that she had done by keeping silent it was the letter arriving at that last desperate moment which had snatched marshal lawrence and burr curtis from the horrible pit which yawned before them the writing of that letter was not an act of enmity but of mercy Harriet kingdon had stood by and uttered no word of warning i shuddered at the utter fiendishness of it but who had written the letter then in a flash i knew what is it lester demanded mr royce wheeling suddenly around i suppose some exclamation must have burst from me though i was not conscious of uttering any sound "'What is it? I can guess what you're thinking. I can't think of anything else.' "'I believe,' I answered, "'that I know who it was wrote that letter to Miss Lawrence.' "'You do?' he cried. "'Who was it?' "'Wait!' I said, and closed my eyes and pressed my hands tight against my temples, in the effort at recollection. "'It was Mrs. Lawrence's aunt, her father's sister. It was to her house she came when she ran away. It was there, no doubt, that the child was born.' "'And who is she?' asked our junior. "'Where does she live?' I made another desperate effort of memory. At last I had it. Her name is Hemingway, I said. I don't know her address, except that it's somewhere in New York. She was married to a banker. Oh, I knew him. Martin Heminway. And Mr. Royce jerked down a directory and ran feverishly through its pages. Here it is, East 54th Street. He closed the book with a bang and took down his hat. Where are you going? I asked. I'm going to see her, he said. You're coming, too. We'll get to the bottom of this, for Curtis's sake. Either we'll prove it a mistake, or we'll prove beyond doubt that it's true. Neither of us spoke during that long drive up town. We were too depressed, too anxious. Nor did we speak as we mounted the steps of the old-fashioned brownstone and rang the bell. We were admitted. We were shown into a room on the second floor after some delay, where, in a great padded chair, an old woman sat, thin and wrinkled, but with eyes preternaturally bright. Mrs. Hemingway, Mr. Royce began directly, we're representing Mr. Burr-Curtis. We feel that some explanation is due him of the sudden flight three days ago of Marsha Lawrence, whom he was to marry, and we believe that you are the one best fitted to tell us the whole story. She did not answer for a moment, but sat peering up at us, plucking at the arms of her chair with nervous, skinny hands. "'Of course he has a right to know,' she cried in a high, thin voice, like the note of a flute. "'I thought the girl would tell him.' "'But since she hasn't,' said our junior, "'I hope you will. I know it won't be a pleasant task.' she stopped him with a quick claw-like gesture. "'I have never shrunk from any duty,' she said, "'however unpleasant. Sit down, gentlemen. I will tell you the story.' "'I am sure there was no evil in either of them, Boyd Endicott or Mary Jarvis. They were rather another Mildred and Merton, caught in the grip of circumstance and whirled asunder by one of those ironical tricks which fate sometimes loves to play.' for on the night of the elopement while boyd endicott leaving princeton on the eve of his christmas vacation was waiting for his bride at trenton with every preparation made to whirl her away to a new home in the west she was speeding away from him toward new york she had taken the train at fanwood and was to change at elizabeth there half dazed by the noise bewildered by the storm which was raging tremulous with fright confused in the tangle of tracks she had taken the wrong train boyd endicott waited through the night with what agony of doubt one can guess then when morning dawned believing mary jarvis faithless believing she loved her father more than him hot-blooded and impetuous he had boarded a train and journeyed alone into the west where they had planned to build up a new home together he was never to know the true story of that night for there in the west two days later his life had been crushed out meanwhile almost paralyzed with fear the girl arrived at new york she was ill benumbed chilled with the cold Darkness was coming on, she knew not where to turn, and finally, in an agony of desperation, she sought the home of Mrs. Hemingway. The cause of her illness could not be long concealed. She asserted that she was married, that she had been Boyd Endicott's wife for nearly a year, but her father did not believe her, for she had no marriage lines. She did not even know the name of the minister before whom their vows had been uttered. She could tell only of a long drive through the dashing rain one night when her father had been detained in town, of a hasty ceremony, of the drive home again. It was an incoherent story at the best, and she told it in a half delirium, which made it more incoherent still. Her father was nearly mad with rage. In his first white wrath he was for sending her forth into the streets. But his sister reasoned with him. There was no need of a public disgrace. She would take the child. The sight of it should never offend him, nor should his daughter know aught concerning it. Doubtless they would have made some effort to verify her story, but the news of Boydendicott's death rendered that unnecessary, for their plan was laid. So the child was born, a boy, and the mother lay for days and weeks hovering between life and death. When she came again to consciousness, they told her that the child was dead, had never lived, indeed. They told her, too, no doubt with a kind of fierce exulting, how Boyd Endicott had met his end, a fit punishment from the hand of God. The past was buried with him. It must be as though it had never been. Mary Jarvis acquiesced. Life, it seemed, held nothing more for her. The future, no less than the past, was to her a dark and lifeless thing. She would have welcomed death, but it did not come. She grew slowly better, and at last she was able to go with her father to Scotland for a long visit among his people there, while he hastened home for his revenge, his pound of flesh. Whatever fault she had been guilty of, she expiated by taking without love, for she knew that love would never come into her life again, the husband of her father's choosing, and seemingly she had never suspected that her child was living. Certainly she never dreamed that her instinctive tenderness for her daughter's lover was that of a mother for her son. So the years passed, and cast a veil about this sorrow, not concealing it, but rendering it less sharp, less poignant. To her daughter no whisper of this secret ever came until that terrible moment when she opened the letter marked Important Read at Once. The blow, of course, must have fallen. It was right that it should fall, but oh, how it might have been tempered! here is what she read in that half-darkened library whither she had fled for refuge marcia lawrence i suppose that you have never heard of me yet i am your mother's only living relative her father's sister there are painful memories perhaps which have caused her to wish to forget me and it is not to claim relationship or ask for love or sympathy that i write this letter but to fulfil a sacred duty a merciful providence turned my eyes this morning to an article in the tribune describing your approaching marriage of which i have hitherto been kept in ignorance from the name age and circumstances given concerning the bridegroom's life i am certain he is your brother your mother's son born in sin in this house thirty-one years ago so are the iniquities of the parents visited upon the children exodus thirty four seven twenty five see also leviticus twenty ten first corinthians six thirteen Romans 6.23. I thank God that he has enabled me to prevent this last iniquity. If any doubt remains to you, ask your mother for the story, or come to me and I will tell it you. Margaret Hemenway. One can guess how this horrible letter palsied her, how this first face-to-face encounter with the world's sin and misery tortured and sickened her but she shook the weakness off they would be seeking her in a moment she must flee must hide herself until she had time to think to adjust herself to this new corroding fact which had come into her life so she sought the kingdon cottage the nearest most convenient refuge and there had written that hasty despairing note and entrusted it to lucy kingdon who had brought her a gown to replace that mockery of satin She had remained there, hidden during the long afternoon, secure in the knowledge that these women, whose devotion to her had a peculiar intensity which she had not quite understood, would not betray her. Then, as soon as darkness fell, she had come to New York and sought Mrs. Hemingway. She must be quite certain, she must know the whole truth, and that old, old woman, with all the grimness of her creed, told her the story bluntly and cruelly as she had told it to us. The child had not died, but had been placed with the family of the manager of her husband's estate on Long Island. himself did not know its history who had in the end adopted it and given it his name there could be no mistaking i have called her merciless for she seemed to glory in another's anguish counting it fit retribution and a punishment from the lord yet i trembled to think how more merciless she might have been had she withheld the truth and when she had heard the story marcia lawrence could no longer doubt but one great load was lifted from her, for she knew in her inmost heart that the story of that wild night drive was true. She knew that her mother had been guilty of no sin. There was a sweet comfort in the thought which made her burden less, though it did not alter the problem which she herself must face. She had been stabbed to the heart, and the wound was bleeding still. She had gone forth from the house white with agony. She wanted time to rest, to think, to grow accustomed to the world again. She had a battle to fight, and hastily purchasing such clothing as she needed. She had taken the first boat for England, where she hoped to hide herself until the tumult in her heart subsided, and she had gathered courage to face the world and her lover. End of chapter 25 End of section 14